to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions. I am Lee Johnson. I'm your host, and I'm joined here today with Dr. Rick Lee. We're missing, unfortunately, Dr. Charles Peterson. His son is graduating from high school. Way to go. But we do have the good fortune of having Dr. Del McWhorter with us today. It's Pride Month, and we're going to be talking about queerness. I'm really excited about this episode. But before we get started, let's get some rants or raves and some drink orders. Rick, let me go to you first. What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm going to have a margarita to celebrate the fact that spring has sprung in Chicago. This week, I am raving about Leslie Uggams as singer. Being good isn't good enough. A few episodes ago, I was raving about Marilyn Bergman as a songwriter. She and her husband were a songwriting team. And in looking at some of their music, I came across the fact that Leslie Uggams recorded an entire album of their songs. So meta. (laughs) So my raves are all coalescing together. Right here at the end of the season. (laughs) All right. As I mentioned before, we have Del McWhorter with us today. I'm super excited. And Del, let's hear your drink order and what you're ranting or raving about this week. Well, I was going to have Prosecco because I find that I can drink a lot of Prosecco without having any bad things happen to me. But after (laughs) the day that I've had thus far... I'm going to have a single malt scotch. Oh, my. I'm going to ask for the best that they have as long as it does not taste like dirt. I do not like single malt scotches that taste like dirt. So peaty is okay, but dirt, no. A single malt scotch, please. And what are you ranting or raving about this week? Well, I have been ranting for weeks now about charter schools. This is because, well, it's in general, you know, charter schools. (laughs) (laughs) QED. (laughs) Yeah. But also because I read a book by a guy named Gordon Laffer, L-A-F-E-R, who has written about the ways in which corporate America has been trying to undermine public education and possibly to eliminate it, and that they've got steps along the way. One of them is to make public schools such a battleground and so underfunded that nobody supports them anymore. But another step is to start this charter school system. So the charter schools are basically owned by corporations, much like private prison systems, and there's a lot of money to be made. And Wall Street's now investing in this. And I think the plan is to get rid of public education. And as much as public education can be criticized, and I've been criticizing it now for about 50 years, I think it's important that everybody have access to education. And I don't think people will if we go to private companies. I also don't think they'll deliver good educations in the long run. So that is my rant. Sign on. Lee, what about you? What are you drinking? And are you ranting or raving? Well, I don't want to be a total copycat, but I am going to copy you, Rick. I am also going to have a margarita. This is my standard drink in the summer, and it has gotten hot here in Memphis. Noel, we'll have a pitcher, please. <laughs> yeah, right. 
<laughs> I'm also going to copy your rave because today I am raving about Sam Cooke. Bring it to me. Bring your sweet love Bring it on home to me. I tell you, Sam Cooke is a great just summer jam. Pick any Sam Cooke song, and it's going to sound better in the summer than it does any other time of the year. And we had a cookout a couple of days ago. I just put him on repeat. So Sam Cooke is what I am raving about today. Rick, you are in the hot seat today. I know we're talking about queerness, but first I want to let you introduce our guest and then give us a setup for our conversation. I am so excited to have Dell with us today. Dell and I have been friends for, let's just say, a couple of years. <laughs> We've maybe been friends for longer than some of our listeners have been alive. But Dell is the Stephanie Bennett Smith Chair in Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at the University of Richmond. She also has an appointment in environmental studies. And when Lee and I were talking about having a discussion about queerness and queering and being queer, the first thought that came to my mind is it would be a lot of fun and really interesting to talk with Dell about these issues. Dell has been thinking about these kinds of questions for a long time. And like the vibe of this podcast, she is a philosopher who is a lot of fun to do philosophy together with. So Dell, welcome to our podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. <laughs> I've been thinking about questions and issues surrounding queerness for a long time. And when Lee and I were talking about it once, she then added, I'd really like to also talk about queering as a verb, queering the curriculum, queering philosophy, and so on. And so I'm really happy that we can finally come to talk about this. And Del, if I may, I'd like to start with a more general question, and that is, when I was a kid, I couldn't ever imagine that the word queer would ever be used except in a pejorative sense. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how queer came from a derogatory term to something that is adopted in a more positive fashion. Yeah, well, first let me say that I share the queasiness that you might have had about the term, and that shows our age, although, of course, you're much younger than I am. <laughs> but yeah, when we were kids, that was a terrible thing to call somebody if you were serious about it. It was one of the worst terms that you could use for somebody who was a homosexual or who was gay or lesbian. Although nobody talked about it very much. You may also recall that. Yeah. You usually only heard about those things when somebody was being brutalized in one way or another at school or somewhere or whispered about. So I've done some research on this, and I think that the advent of the positive use goes back to the late 1980s. And that was mm. the height of the AIDS crisis. You may recall that AIDS began began to be noticed, I guess, by the general public in the early 80s. But there weren't really effective drugs so that people could actually live relatively normal lives with the disease until 1995 or 6. So there was a long period of time when the crisis just raged. And for much of the 80s, 
the U.S. government didn't pay very much attention. In fact, Ronald Reagan didn't say the word until quite late in his administration. Compared to the pandemic that we've been experiencing for the last two plus years, there was just no public concern about it. And so gay and lesbian communities all over the country and in fact, all over the world were really left out. People didn't care what was happening to them. When it was discussed, it was a joking matter. I think in the midst of all that frustration, and there was a lot of activism too that was going on. ACT UP was very active and they were putting pressure on the CDC and the FDA, as well as the administration, and it wasn't getting them anywhere. And they were just really angry and really frustrated and grieving, of course, because hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people had died or were dying. So the first time that I know of it being used in general public context and a political context was in the summer of 1990 in New York City when the Gay Pride Parade was done in Pride Month. There was a pamphlet that was passed around anonymously, put out by a group of people that called themselves Queer Nation. Right. And this group, which probably was an offshoot of ACT UP in New York City, this group was clearly more than one person. The pamphlet had been written by multiple authors, and it was really a rant about a lot of things. Pretty militant. And from that point on, then you started hearing this slogan, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. I think the idea of adopting the term queer was how much more abuse can we take? We may as well just fire back. Yeah, that's what we are. And now we're not taking this anymore. So that was the political uses of the term. The same year, there was a conference on the West Coast at Santa Cruz that called itself Queer Theory. And they put out a journal issue of the journal differences called Queer Theory. So these academics were taking up the term more as a way of challenging some of the tenets of the, at that point, pretty new discipline of gay and lesbian studies to trouble some of those tenets and directions that that was going. And so they called it queering. We might queer gay and lesbian studies a little bit, mess it up, change it. Mm. So there was these two, and they may have been connected, but they look at least disparate uses in the same year of the term queer in a sense that at least wasn't pejorative. I won't say that queer nation was positive. I mean, it was an angry use of the term. But from that point on, there were these other ways of talking about it. I suspect this was going on in communities, not publicly, a few years before 1990. But that's where I would put the start of the public, more generally known use of the term queer in less negative and in some cases very positive sense. What's interesting to me about that is even in describing it, you raised a number of other terms that one could imagine would be used to refer to the same community. So you mentioned homosexual, gay and lesbian. Is there something that belongs to the word or the concept or category queer that goes beyond what would belong to the other terms that were also in use in the late 80s at the same time? Yeah, I think that was part of the intent, at least for some people that it would be a term that would be a kind of anti-identity, that it would be more inclusive, that it would also, as Lee mentioned, be a a verb, Mm. and that it could include anybody who challenged what came to be known as heteronormativity. 
And that word comes out of queer theory, by the way. I think it's usually attributed to Michael Warner in 1993. So queer theory sort of invented heteronormativity as a concept. But after that point, I think before that point, too, people would often say that anything that challenges heteronormativity is queer. And so people whose lives challenge heteronormativity in various ways are queer. And that might include some people, for example, Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, who was one of the leaders in queer theory in the 90s, called herself queer, but was in a heterosexual marriage. I mean, it was nominally heterosexual. That is, there was a man and a woman involved. <laughs> but it was clearly not a heteronormative relationship. And their other relationships were not heteronormative either. And so that seemed to be part of queer all along. And then by 1997, we get Kathy Cohen's really famous article, Punks, Bulldaggers and Welfare Queens, in which she argues that queer should mean anything that challenges heteronormativity anybody who's punished socially, politically, or economically because they don't conform to heteronormative standards, which also are mixed up together with middle class and white standards. And I think although there were people who just took up the term and used it as an identity category, just an enlarged umbrella identity category, there's always been, at least in the theoretical and some of the more militant political sections of queerness, there's always been this resistance to making it into an identity category, to keep it being something very militant and something very politically disruptive. And identities typically are not. They become consumer focused. They become objects of political organizing in a traditional way, much as we see that gay and lesbian movements have been. And even now, if you ask somebody like Dean Spade, trans movements are becoming do you think that there has been a shift in the focus of queerness or queer as an identity category away from sexuality and towards gender performance or gender expression? Because it does seem to me that now we see a lot more conversations about queerness that have to do with gender identities than we do with sexuality or sexual mm -hmm. preference. In many ways, one of the things that we've seen over the last 30, 40 years as gay and lesbian relationships have become more visible and become more intelligible to more people, as gays and lesbians have gained rights in the political sphere is that a lot of the gay and lesbian relationships are in fact not upsetting heteronormativity at all. <laughs> and so it does seem like what we've seen now is a shift away from queer as indicating a sexuality identity and as really become more and more focused on gender identity. Am I just the only one seeing this? Does anyone else see this? No, I think you're right. Certainly among younger people, which all of us hang out with an awful lot, maybe more than we want to. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, it, it seems like now it's just kind of passe to be gay or lesbian. That's just so white bread, you know? I've wondered if there were any more lesbians. I don't know any lesbians under 35, frankly, but everybody's genderqueer or gender fluid or non-binary or trans. So, yeah, I think things are getting well, much well, more Well, not focused. everybody. Not everyone. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, that would be... That would be an interesting thing, wouldn't it? Uh, you know, I've seen people argue that everybody's a little queer. I mean, I'm one of those people who would argue that. I know that we may disagree on this point, but I do think that 
everyone is a little queer. I do worry, though, and I believe I've said this to both of you before, that we're getting to a point with the use of the term queer as an identity category where it does seem like almost everyone is queer and therefore no one is queer. And you live in Memphis? (laughs) (laughs) I think in a way this goes back to maybe a divergence between the kind of two sides that, Dell you were laying out earlier, namely the one you ended up calling militant or activist, let's say, mm-hmm. and the other theoretical. And so in a theoretical way, if I understand queerness as maybe just initially challenging gender binaries, challenging heteronormative sexual relations, and so on, it's not that hard to expand that and then come to understand, wait, Aristotle's concept of matter is actually queer because (laughs) it resists all sorts of categorizations. It can be this, it can be that. And once theoretically even matter is queer, then I think Lee's point comes to the fore. Then it's no longer politically relevant. More so, it's no longer politically powerful. Right. I think that's true. I'm not disagreeing with Lee. I think that there's a balancing act that goes on politically with these sorts of terms and with the way we organize. There's not any absolute right way to do this. But I'm still interested in Aristotle's matter, and I'm wondering (laughs) exactly how does that challenge heteronormativity? Maybe just by challenging everything? Well, I think Emma Bianchi has a really nice book on the ways in which Aristotle's theory of matter does bring a challenge to heteronormativity. But what I was actually pointing to was the slippage from a kind of challenge of binary relations as Mm -hmm. structuring that can then start getting expanded to where even something like matter could be now thought as queer. And there might be theoretically powerful reasons for that, but at the same time, that might be diluting the political power of the term and the way in which it can bring about a certain kind of solidarity. Yeah. When we talk about queer in the theoretical sense, most of the time it seems to me that queer is a verb. Mm -hmm. We're using queering as something that, as Rick said, is upsetting binaries or troubling categories, etc. And so in that sense, it does seem to me that when we're talking about queering, theoretically, that no one is queer. Queer is not an identity Mm. there. Yes. Because what the identity is, is a destabilization of identity categories. So I can kind of see Rick's point that it maybe doesn't have the same punch as when we use queerness as an identity category, where there it is very much situated in structures of power and political relations, where we have to be able to identify who is queer and who isn't, or who is queer and who's against the queers, for it to be politically effective. This is one of the things that is really interesting to me when we look at what's happened over the last 30 years, is that from the theoretical point of view, there is this constant resistance to queerness as an identity category, or at least as a stable identity category. Mm -hmm. And from the political point of view, there's this constant reassertion of who is and who isn't queer, or who is queer and who's against the queers. That goes back to, I think, a point Dell 
you were making earlier, namely that the stabilization, which is often very hard to resist, at the same time makes it incredibly easy for marketing purposes. Mm -hmm. And I just saw a commercial recently for Adidas shoes, or I guess they they're called Adidas, I'm not sure, (laughs) which was clearly marketing queer folk, marketing to queer folk openly and avowedly. And I think that requires a certain kind of stability of the identity, which is in an odd way anti-queer. The stable (laughs) identity is therefore not a queer identity. Yeah, and that gets particularly problematic exactly this time every year during Pride Month. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You know, recently I've seen several of my friends who are in heteronormative married relationships remind people on social media that queer people exist in heteronormative relationships, Hmm. like what we would from the outside recognize as straight relationships. This is in the course of saying we ought to also be included, recognized in Pride Month. And I think that there's understandable resistance to that from Hmm. gays and lesbians, from trans people. So it remains a contested category because we keep trying to make it do two opposing things at once. One, indicate a group, and two, indicate that groups themselves are problematic, group categories are problematic. It's interesting to me, I've been in situations with both of you in which the question not necessarily posed by either of you has come up, but Rick, what are you? (laughs) And it's interesting to me, like this demand that there be an identity somewhere there, that seems to me so enticing, both theoretically and maybe just interpersonally, but it also is the very opposite of queerness. Well, I was only asking on behalf of all the men at my wedding that were after (laughs) you and really wanted to know the status. Yeah. I mean, it really wasn't anything personal. I was just trying to hook up a friend. (laughs) Oh, I forgot to mention in my intro that you also run a matchmaking service. (laughs) Yes, yes. But, you know, we can understand why people want that category to be more solid for political reasons that we've just laid out. But I think that as the category becomes more solid, it opens itself up for more abuse. And I think that a lot of queer people, and I include myself among them, get frustrated when we see people crassly adopting this category for political gains. I find myself often saying, you know, of course you're queer because it serves your interest. And the minute that it doesn't serve your interest, you can drop that category very easily in Mm. ways that the rest of us real queers can't. (laughs) And I do think that, you know, there's good reason for people to be frustrated by that. Yeah, I think you're right. I still live in a place where there's not much political or economic gain for claiming queer. So that doesn't happen as much around here. You know, most people would not see it as expedient to play on our team, as we used to say, because our team's mm. always losing, you know. 
<laughs> Despite all of our practices and all of our picnics, we yeah. still well, keep losing. You know, it's, you know, some of our players are really bad at sports. And yeah. So here's another fact you didn't mention about me in my introduction. I DJ at what used to be a lesbian bar and now is a queer bar on Tuesday nights every week. And I've done this for years. Over the years, sometimes there will be a heterosexual couple that will come in and what they're looking for is a woman to be the third or just looking for a place that they can make out in public and not get thrown out. And it makes everybody else mad. It's like Mm. you're using our space and you're getting to do some things that you wanted to do that you didn't feel like you could do in some other places. But it's not about us. It's not about anything in our lives. It's not about anything we need. It's just about you, you know, making a public display of yourselves or trying to find somebody. I guess it's pretty queer to one a third. Yeah. But anyway, it's not something that a bunch of old lesbians are really happy about. I mean, other than that, I always look from the DJ booth at who's wearing a trench coat in the summer because they might have a gun back there. But, Mm. you know, that's a real thing to feel like you're being abused or that you're being exploited. Or that your space is disappearing. I mean, you mentioned that it's not a lesbian bar anymore. It's a queer bar. And the truth is, I've mentioned this on this podcast before, there are only nine lesbian bars left in the entire United States. You're kidding. In many ways. No, dead serious. Okay. That is. You got to email fact. me the list because I got to go patronize them <laughs> <laughs> before they disappear. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, the first episode of this season was on bars. And I think I said in that episode that there aren't any really gay bars left because all bars are gay bars and all gay bars are queer bars now. And I'm not necessarily saying that that's a bad thing. Maybe it is great that things are opening up and we don't need these isolated or segregated spaces anymore. But I'll tell you what's not opening up is the violence that's still Mm. directed at gay people. And that is Mm. one reason to say that those spaces are important spaces. Well, yeah. I mean, ever since the Roanoke massacre at a bar, and this has now been, I guess, 23 or four years. Yeah. A guy just walked into a gay bar in Roanoke and shot a bunch of people wearing a trench coat in the summertime So you just can't ever feel like that wouldn't happen in our bar, you know? Right. So we scan the crowd. That's part of daily existence for us still. Yeah. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. This question of violence, I think, is the flip side of Lee's point earlier about not just the political power that emerges from maintaining queerness, maybe even close to being an identity. But the flip side of that seems to be that then it's not just an identity for activism, but it's an identity for being acted upon. 
that is, then the queer community can become a target. Yeah, and is always. And that's been true, of course, all our lives and before. Yeah, I was talking to Lee about this game that kids used to play on the playground, and you, you probably both remember it. It was called Smear the Queer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, I don't recall if I ever played it, but kids played it every day at recess because we used to be basically unsupervised at recess back when people thought kids were safe in schools. I don't know why they ever thought that. So it was easy to play because you didn't have to have much equipment. You just needed some kind of object, often a ball, but it didn't have to be a ball. It could be some other object if you didn't have a ball. And the idea was that somebody threw the ball randomly and whoever ended up inadvertently catching it was the queer and the object of the game was to chase that person around knock them down rub them in the dirt as much as possible unless they could somehow get rid of the object before that happened to them so that person was the queer the object was to smear that person really smear in the mud or dirt whatever that was just a normal game that kids in elementary school played even kids, I'm pretty sure, who didn't know what the word referred to. Mm. And it seemed to have been part of child culture. I'm sure it wasn't a part of child culture accidentally. And it got played by little kids, but I'm sure that it also got played by bigger kids until they could play football. <laughs> <laughs> so do you guys remember that, that, that old game? Yes, I do. I also remember that game. I think that I'm a little bit younger than both of you. Not a ton, but a little bit. And so I do remember that game in elementary school. But I also graduated high school in 1991. So at the time that queer was being reappropriated as the positive political term that you were talking about earlier. So I think that I don't have the memory of queer being a slur as much as I have the memory of queer being part of the pride slogan, you know, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. But that's because we sort of come into our political consciousness, not at seven or eight years old, but later. So, yeah. Yeah. And things have changed in my lifetime dramatically in some ways. I fear that it's going to change some more in some negative ways. I don't believe in necessary progress in the human world. I ridicule people who do, but it certainly has in some ways gotten much easier to live as some kind of queer person than it was. But this is one positive aspect, it seems to me, of something like an identity, if not an actual identity. And that is, I mean, to put it bluntly, you know who your people are. Yeah. So that when you're feeling alone or you're feeling like the world is against me, at least then you know where to go to talk with people who will support you, help act on your behalf or together with you and so on. And that seems to me is an extremely important reason for bringing queerness to something like an identity. I see that. And it, it would have made a huge difference to me. If I had known that and not thought that I was the only person in the world, right? because I couldn't see when I was in high school, I could not imagine what sort of adult life I could possibly have. There was Hmm. no such model, you know, and part of that was because there weren't any sources of information other than the three television networks and the public library in my small town in Alabama, which, of course, had no books in it. (laughs) (laughs) and there were no computer terminals and there was no social media and so on so a lot of things were happening when i was in high school across the country there were marches and there were protests and there were gains made 
But I knew none of that. I all I knew yeah, was same. all I knew was save the children. Anita Bryant was afraid that we were all going to get queered. Yeah, and I was pretty sure that I would be killed if anybody found out, killed or committed. And you know that. That hasn't gone away. I mean, my wife and I frequently find ourselves in places and we say this to each other. We're like, yeah, this is not a safe space for us. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes that's obvious places like the suburbs. right? (laughs) And sometimes that's places where you just have this queer sense about it. You're like, we need to be careful. We could be putting ourselves in danger by being obvious. I mean, I feel like we're both pretty obvious just looking at us, but you still have to be careful. I love the use of queer sense as an analogy to something like spidey sense. (laughs) (laughs) My my queer sense is tingling. (laughs) I mean, that's a funny thing because there is, of course, the mythical gaydar. Right. You know, and again, you don't want to essentialize, I don't want to essentialize this identity category, but it's weird It's weird that you do have a sense of who your people are, and it is a lot like a spidey sense. Mm. Mine has malfunctioned in certain conditions, though. When I moved to Missouri, I thought all the women in Missouri were dykes. They weren't. (laughs) (laughs) It was just a different aesthetic. (laughs) (laughs) I had that same experience when I was living in Syracuse. I was like, hmm, upstate New Yorker or lesbian? Yeah. But it's funny. I was out with my sisters last weekend. It was one of my sister's birthdays and we all converged in Atlanta, which I hadn't been to for years. And we went to a bar restaurant tavern thing and all of the waiters were queer. And it was so Mm. obvious to me and my sisters who are both straight. You know, kind of, I was like, is he gay? I was like, yes, honey. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of this goes back to, Del, what you were pointing to, namely that I think for people of a certain age, and since you raised Sedgwick's work earlier, in a condition of overt and obvious, even celebrated oppression, one has to hone incredibly delicate hermeneutic skills in order Mm -hmm. to navigate one's way in the world. And so I think there is a way in which for people of a certain age, there was always a lot of very subtle but definite kind of signaling that would go on. Yeah, and I've never known really how I acquired the ability to do that. You know, there used to be real signals that you had to learn, like a certain color of high. Mm. Men had signals like that. Or a certain way that you would, on the sidewalk, stop, look in a store window with a reflection and signal a guy behind you. Or one of my all-time favorites, a certain way of tapping your foot in a toilet stall to Mm -hmm. the stall next to you. And this, you know, resulted in political scandal at times because some congressman got caught tapping his foot to a police officer. Or a certain flair with which he played the church organ. Well, that goes without saying, maybe. (laughs) But the signals of the foot tapping and the tie and so on, those are things that people had to pass to each other by telling Mm -hmm. each other. The other stuff Mm -hmm. is harder to figure out how we acquire it, but I pride myself upon my gaydar except in the Midwest. Well, Missouri, at least. Mm -hmm. To go back to something Lee said earlier, if it seems as if everyone is queer now, at least among a certain population, younger people, 
at least in certain geographic locations, probably urban, that there's more readiness to say I'm queer and more acceptance of someone saying I'm queer. It seems to me part of the danger of that is to think, well, it's all okay now. It's all fine. Everything's fine. I mean, I do think that there is a population of younger people, and I'm trying very hard not to be like kids today, but kids today. (laughs) Kids today. (laughs) There is a population of younger people who adopt queer as an identity in ways that I don't think was really available to our generation. Mm -hmm. That is to say that they adopt queer as an identity to indicate that they either haven't made a decision about their sexuality or gender identity, or they just don't care about sexuality and gender identity in the way that mainstream culture makes options available to them. That is something that I really respect. And I think maybe the first indication that what we were calling a difference between queering as a noun or queering as an identity category and the more theoretical queering as a verb of upsetting identity categories might actually be coming together for them. It might be like, hey, this is an option. I don't have to be male or female or straight or gay or whatever. You know, I can just be queer. That's something I'm very jealous Mm. of this generation for having as an option. But I also think that it does indicate that there are real changes that have been made And that there are actually different ways of thinking about queer identity now. It's interesting. I've been teaching this class on Marx's Capital, just parts of volume one. And we get to a point where Marx is talking about how capital requires there to be a relatively large market of what he calls a reserve army of labor. And this has to do with the fact that if labor becomes scarce, then capital has to pay more for labor than if it's more plentiful. And all of a sudden, students were like, oh, my God, maybe this is why there is a general interest in heteronormativity, because capital needs reproduction and reproduction, at least pretty much still until now, requires a certain kind of biological condition in order for it to happen. And there was this awareness that, wow, heteronormativity might just be capital. Mm. And then I think now more students than ever I've experienced than ever before are so willing to disavow capitalism or critique capitalism or expose the ways in which capitalism is not doing what it was supposed to do that I'm wondering if the shaking of the foundations of capitalism and the shaking of the foundations of normativity, particularly heteronormativity, might not go hand in hand. Yeah. I'm observing the same thing, too, and I don't know whether it's just a confluence or these are related, as you're suggesting. Hmm. I'm seeing, especially among environmental studies students, but others as well, just a blatant critique of capitalism, not necessarily a very highly developed one, but just a willingness to speak against it. And I think because they're seeing it as at the root of the problem of pollution and climate change and so on, and also as the obstacle to doing anything to address those really pressing issues for their generation, but for all of us. So I see that. And then I also see all this embrace of gender fluidity and non-binarism and all of that stuff. And sometimes I think, to go back to what Lee was saying, 
I often wonder, you know, are they going to still do that after they graduate from college? Or are they just going to say, well, like, that's when I did cocaine and that's when I did queer and, (laughs) (laughs) and I don't do that anymore, you know? I wonder about that because there's a culture, there's an attractive social scene and so on that you can fit into. Some people can if you claim those things or if you dress a certain way. I wonder if some of that will disappear for some of them. So part of me is the skeptic who's saying, oh, the kids today, they're just playing around. It's just a phase, you know, although that makes me feel ill to say. <laughs> but then mm-hmm. the other part of me, I think, is, is more optimistic, as Lee was expressing, that even if they're doing it in some ways that are at times not very graceful, not very theoretically sharp, not very politically sharp, that there is a kind of explosion happening. And if they do stick with it and keep pushing and refine and think, it could really take us somewhere new that would be good. So I have ambivalences about all of this. One thing that I do think is indicative of kids today is that they have a tolerance for ambivalence and ambiguity that far exceeds my generation or any generation before them. In many ways, that is good. And I think that here, when we're talking about gender identity and sexual identity, that it has been good that they have this high tolerance for ambiguity and ambivalence. I think that there are many ways in which it's actually really terrible as well. We see a lot of the lazy relativism. The, the like I said, that the motto of this generation is "I can see both sides." Mm. <laughs> you know, it's, mm. so I do think that there are problems with that as well. But yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that there are good reasons to be encouraged by this. But to sharpen those problems a little bit more, I see two dangers. One is the both sidesism, but also opening the door to thinking that, yeah, maybe there are alternative facts. I see that side of the problem. But also, I hear a lot of students talk about this in the sense of the individual and their freedom, yeah. and that this is all a matter of freedom and the individual. And once that category starts operating, then I'm along with Dell worrying about you know, as older people might say, when you have to get a job, then, you know, is all this going to fall to the wayside? But I do worry about this idea of individuality and individual freedom that I sometimes hear operating in this kind of ambiguity. I do too. And that's so easily absorbed by consumer culture too. Express yourself, buy these clothes, buy these shoes, buy this makeup, whatever it is. Yeah. Well, you know, I feel like when I was coming up, that the big conversation was whether or not homosexuality is nature or nurture, right? Mm. Like this was the thing. It's like, to put it in Lady Gaga terms, were you born this way or you know, <laughs> did you choose it? And I think that today the default correct way to answer that is that it's not a choice. Despite the fact that I do believe that for many people, young people especially, in their actual experience of coming to identify themselves, that it is very much a choice. They have, as a matter of fact, infinite choices for those kinds of identities. And so they're really, you know, caught between a rock and a hard place here in trying to have what we might call like a theoretically sound approach to identity categories that have to do with gender and sexuality. But it's interesting to me that on the one hand, 
I think that sexuality and one's engaging in sex and enjoying sex and so on, or not engaging in sex and thinking about oneself as not engaging in sex, that this is really important to individuals and it's an important aspect of human life for sure. But what's also interesting for me, and I think I've learned this from Dell's book, Bodies and Pleasures, that it also, in the abstract, is an extremely strange way of organizing our society, our social relations, and so on. And one of my takeaways from that book is, what if we thought about this in terms of practices of pleasure? then how would we organize ourselves in terms of sexual pleasure? What would that look like? And I'm not sure that anything like gender and therefore maybe even something like queerness might not be the most efficient ways to organize communities of pleasure. Wow. I'm trying to wrap my mind around the claim here. So I would describe myself as fully in the Butlerian camp of gender performativity, that I do believe that genders are not some essence that belong to us. You know, when you die and then you go to the autopsy that they take out your liver and they take out your spleen and then they take out your gender. Like, I don't <laughs> think, I think that they are primarily performances. But I also think that there is a pleasure that I get out of certain gendered performances and a displeasure I get out of other kinds of gendered performances. And so I do think that we could still talk about gender as performative and also in a larger rhetoric of communities of pleasures. That would also then include the fullness of what Butler might mean, for example, by gender as performative, namely that it's not your free choice. And so as performative, you could also find as much displeasure in, as it were, being made to perform mm -hmm. a certain gender, for sure. Hey, listeners, we're virtually toasting you here at the hotel bar. But since we can't put our next drink on your tab, we figure the least you can do is follow this podcast on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. Charles is at CF Peterson. That's at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is spelled with an O. Rick is at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor is abbreviated DR, and Lee is spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, on the off chance that you weren't just furiously scribbling notes while I said that, you can visit our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and find everything you need to know about how to follow and listen to us there. Now, back to our conversation. <laughs> One of the things that I have been thinking a lot about is the intersection of race and gender and sexuality. I mean, I've talked about it in work that I've published, but it still seems to me it's something that's not talked about enough, particularly in the context of queerness. There's a lot of queer theory doesn't delve too much into race, as some queer theorists have pointed out vociferously. So I wonder if maybe that's something we ought to explore here. 
so what difference does race make in all of this discussion that we're having about queer and queering and queerness? Maybe in relation to what Lee raised earlier about this notion that everyone is queer now, I hear a lot of language that will very easily put into a group of some sort a number of oppressed communities or communities that have experienced oppression as if the oppression is identical or something like that. And so one hears people of color and queer folk and women. Yeah, that that checks out. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm not alone in having heard this kind of grouping together. And I think on the one hand, it points to something important, and I don't want to ever take away an aspiration in a positive direction. Namely, let's bring structural oppression to the fore and make sure we're thinking about it. On the other hand, there are incredible problems with the kind of elision of people of color with queer folk. In the 2009 book, Racism and Sexual Oppression in Anglo-America, what I did was try to map out the history of certain formations of power that had really negative, horrendous effects on several different groups of people. And the effects are different, but the structures of power are often the same one or the same Mm. few. And I looked particularly at history of anti-black racism and to some extent of oppression of people with disabilities of various sorts, as well as oppression of queer people in general and to some extent of women in general. If you trace that, and you have to be very careful when you do things like that. I mean, as you know, I use a genealogical method that I've taken out of the work of Michel Foucault, and it requires meticulous particularity. You really have to look at things in local contexts, look at a whole bunch of pieces and strange manifestations of texts and so on. But when you do that with all those parameters in place, you can in fact trace out ways in which sexist oppression of women was linked to anti-black racism and Mm. in ways in which oppression of homosexual people was linked to oppression of people with disabilities and so on and so forth. There are real deep and important connections, which ought to, I think, help us build coalitions across groups that actually do have very different experiences and different histories. So what I would like to see is more coalition building, but not at the expense of erasing the differences, as you point out, because the differences are tremendous and also really important. Mm. But it's also important to realize that there are people of color who are both women and queer and have disabilities or are poor. You know, I mean, there are people who live in those places where all of that stuff intersects. And one of the problems with aligning the differences in those series that you're talking about, you know, somebody, comma, somebody, 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 comma, comma, comma. One of the problems with that is not just homogenizing, but it's also differentiating in ways that don't leave room for people who fit into Mm. many of those categories. The notion of homogenization and at the same time differentiation to me is really interesting, and I don't want to take this away from the specifics of the question that got us involved in this. Are you going to talk about Aristotle again? (laughs) I am. Rick and his queer matter. (laughs) How did you know what I call my thing? Because that's what everyone calls it. (laughs) 
Did you read that on the bathroom wall at SPEP? I did, as a matter of fact. <laughs> yes. So I am not a Foucauldian, and I don't normally practice genealogy, but one of the things I do appreciate although it is quite complex, is the ways in which structures of power manifest themselves and operate by means of this dual gesture of bringing together disparate things under a category, bringing people together that don't, as it were, naturally belong together, but also at the same time by dividing, separating, differentiating. And this is what I love about Foucault, often in excruciating detail, so that we might not be able to just talk about the homosexual, but now we have to go into even more detail about just what exactly we're talking about. I always find that really helpful in Foucault, that structures of power are not themselves homogenous. They are both homogenous and differential, and they are homogenizing and differentializing. I think is a really interesting contribution Foucault makes to a lot of analyses of structures of power. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, and I think Foucault has been really helpful in showing how establishing identity categories always comes with a long history of practices that benefit the already empowered, but also disrupting identity categories often benefits the already politically empowered. Yeah. Yes. Basically, everything benefits the already politically empowered. <laughs> it's a little different. But there's also always, as Rick's description of power structures makes clear, there are ways in which structures of power are themselves a bunch of moving parts that don't necessarily always articulate well. And that the more you understand them, the more likely it is that you will see ways to exploit those disarticulations or cracks and bring down pieces of them. And I think that's a lot of what queer theory tries to do. Mm. And maybe we can hope that that's what some of our young folks are trying to do with all their different kinds of gender performances and strange discussions and outlandish hairstyles. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> we just jumped the kids these days shark right there. I was just about to say, if only they would keep off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> Bell, as you're aware, Noel has just flickered the lights signaling last call. So <laughs> I got you another non-dirty single malt scotch. <laughs> Thank you. While we're waiting for that, you're welcome back anytime to talk about any topic you would like to talk about. But before we go, I was wondering if you have any last thoughts, something you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to, and any way to queer our conversation. <laughs> I wish I could queer our conversation, but I think it's pretty queer already. <laughs> you know, there's always so much more to talk about in this area. There's just tons of things we could have explored and so many more avenues we could have taken on even the things that we did explore. And I guess I want to say, first of all, that my ideas about all of this tend to be in flux most of the time. Mm. I'm pretty destabilized as a general rule. And so if we had this conversation next week, I would probably have different things to say. But it is kind of wonderful. I think, again, I will end on an optimistic note that the more things that are happening, the more different kinds of things people are experimenting with, I think the more hopeful I feel about the possibilities for the future politically 
although I'm still pretty depressed about climate change. But who knows? Yeah, that's the one thing that we can't figure out how to queer. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, my sister suggested that Al Gore should never have invented climate change. The Internet was fine. I just want to echo what Dell said. I also am really encouraged by what we see happening with all of these categories, categories about gender identity and sexuality. And it gives me a lot of hope, even though I can be a cranky middle-aged woman. I look to these kids these days and they are doing amazing things. I am strangely for me, optimistic as well. So, Lee, I'm wondering if you'll call us all a cab. And while we're waiting, I would just like to remind our listeners that we have a Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. We have set up many levels of support. Really, we're not using this to make any money. We are asking you just to help us defray the costs of producing the podcast. You know, them bits is free. But they have to live somewhere, and we have to pay (laughs) the Airbnb for the bits. (laughs) So we're just asking anything you can do to support us would go a long way. Lee, is our cab here? Uh, It is here. I feel like we can all jump in and go try to find a lesbian bar. Ah, One of the nine. One of the nine. Oh, my God. (laughs) Road trip. Shotgun. (laughs) (laughs) 